that breaking news from the Supreme Court, a leaked draft opinion reportedly shows the nation's high court could be set to overturn the landmark 1973 abortion rights ruling Roe v. Wade. The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for... May 4th. May the 4th be with you. 2022, it's your old pal Justin Robert Young joining you from Austin, Texas. Good Lord, sometimes you are begging for something to chatter about. Other times your cup runneth over. That's one of these episodes. Boy, howdy, the entire political world rocked by Politico. Dot com late Monday night when they published what we now know to be an accurate early draft of a very hotly anticipated Supreme Court case with this headline. Four, sorry, five uh, of the uh, Supreme Court justices are set to overturn Roe versus Wade. Big, big stuff. We will go through all of the implications, not only what would happen in Congress, but also in the midterms, and we do a little bit of digging into how gigantic a leak from the Supreme Court on a case like this is, and do a little reckless speculation as to who might have done it. Or at least, like, the broad strokes of who. Like, not the name, but, like, the type of person that might have done it. Including one wild conspiracy theory. We are also going to give you the latest Ohio results. Full disclosure, I'm recording this at about four o'clock in the afternoon central time. So uh, the first segment of this will be those Ohio results. I will be doing them as they come in or when we know uh, uh, who did what. We will find out the uh, 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 results of everything. So I'm not going to pretend like I know them right now. Don't worry, in, in a few seconds after you hear the butt first music, I'll be right into it. Also, we have a great interview with a man by the name of Matt Sinkowitz, who has a brand new book exploring the world of conservative comedy. See, the way that Matt sees it, the world of conservative comedy can kind of fit into a mall. And while you have your big box stores that have gigantic audiences like Greg Gutfeld, You also have some smaller boutique shops, maybe even some kiosks like the Babylon Bee or Steven Crowder. But what troubles Matt is that there's also a deep, dank basement with some of the most offensive uh, uh, S-posters and uh, streamers and political hosts that you can imagine. His point is that because conservative comedy is marginalized, They tend to intermingle more than you might think. I think it's going to be an interesting interview. I think that you guys, whether or not you agree or disagree with him, you are going to be interested to hear in his perspective. I I, I thought it was a great convo. All that. But first... That is J.D. Vance, the Republican nominee for Senate in Ohio, the same race that we went out there and covered. Indeed, our uh, our, our our thoughts were correct that uh, the Trump endorsement was the thing that mattered the most. But uh, let's go ahead and take a look here 
at the unofficial results as of 10 p.m. Central Time. That is 11 there on the East Coast. J.D. Vance with a fairly commanding 32% win. That puts him about 10 points higher than uh, the polls had him trailing behind Josh Mandel, uh, one of the the you know front runners of this race at twenty three, and indeed the Matt Dolan surge was for real because Matt Dolan effectively ties Josh Mandel at twenty three percent and change. So let's really kind of break down exactly what that means. That means that. 50% of this electorate, roughly 50% of this electorate, uh, actually, no, over 50% of this electorate are Trump people. Because either they were Trump voters that would go where Trump said they should go, and that's J.D. Vance, that's 32%, or they were Trump voters, but they didn't like J.D. Vance. That's 23%. Like, because Josh Mandel effectively in the final few weeks of this race was running a we are the true mantle of Trump uh, campaign. Matt Dolan surged as soon as Trump made a, a call and he was the only person that was, I mean, if not the never Trump uh, candidate, probably somewhere between that and the the I don't want to acknowledge Trump candidate and he got 23%. So effectively what we can say in Ohio is that the never Trump electorate is about the same as the not the guy that Trump endorsed electorate, which is non-existent. And to be totally honest, if we're not in a race to say who can be the most MAGA. I believe J.D. Vance is a candidate that can sway them back. You know, th- this is a, a, a fairly interesting election and one for which I would put J.D. Vance as the, the, the real favorite against Tim Ryan, who won fairly easily the Democratic primary in uh, uh, this particular election. Mike Gibbons, who we also covered, uh, only gathered uh, 11.63% of the vote uh, as we talk to you right now. You know, goddamn, I, I, I gotta say, like, when I go to these places, I feel like I got a handle for them. <laughs> like, I told you that that, that Mike Gibbons felt beaten and tired. I I showed you that Josh Mandel needed somebody to come up after two speakers after him, after his own event to launch bombs at JD Vance. And we, we, we see the result right here. So there we go. Uh, 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 Mandel second Gibbons third or sorry, Dolan third. Gibbons fourth, J.D. Vance will advance to the general election. By the way, Mike DeWine uh, fairly handily won his Republican primary against two right-leaning challengers there. DeWine is not Kasich moderate, but, uh, uh, you know, certainly more moderate than some of the, 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 the MAGA folks would prefer. So there we go. Ohio has been decided. J.D. Vance will meet Tim Ryan. All right, let's go ahead and get into the story that everybody is talking about. Set fire to the entire political landscape late Monday night. And that is the Politico story leaking what we now know is an authentic February draft 
of the Mississippi abortion case that is written by Justice Alito and appears, uh, or at least says, that the majority of the court is not only ruling to overturn the, or sorry, to sustain that law, but to overturn Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. This obviously would be a seismic political event, uh, the likes of which I can't remember a ton of uh, uh, equals to, to have a Supreme Court decision that has been the bedrock of politics reversed would be something that uh, uh, would have long lasting political ramifications. So I'm going to break this into three buckets here that I roughly think is kind of in order the biggest issues uh, that are stemming from this. The first is what happens in Congress, because that's going to happen the earliest. Then what happens at the midterms? And then what the hell happened with this leak? Jesus. All right. Let's begin with Congress. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer re- uh, released a very pointed joint statement slamming Trump, Republicans, and Mitch McConnell for allowing three justice to be justices to be appointed on the 45th president's term. That obviously is why there is now a conservative majority on the bench. Mitch McConnell responded saying that the statements from Pelosi and Schumer, as well as Joe Biden, were further inflaming the situation that should have never happened since this was all stemming from a leak of a month's old draft. So it is important to note here that Mitch McConnell's comments came before Chief Justice Roberts confirmed that this was real. At the time that Pelosi and Schumer and Biden released their statements, this was a leak that we did not know for sure was real beyond Politico's reporting. But here's the real question. Do the Democrats have the moves to do anything considering they still do hold control of the White House, Senate and House? And the answer seems to be no. Joe Manchin is both anti-filibuster busting without a bipartisan compromise and isn't a firebrand abortion rights activist. In March, he joined with Republicans to block the Women's Health Protection Act, which would enshrine Roe as law. So that leaves Susan Collins and Lisa Lisa Murkowski, both Republicans, that would require them crossing the aisle on a hot button issue. For a politician, one of those, either crossing the aisle or voting on a hot button issue, is death. To ask them to do two at once is nearly impossible. Still. Susan Collins did appear stung by this news, releasing a statement, quote, if this leaked draft opinion is the final decision and the reporting is accurate, it would be completely inconsistent with with what Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh said in their hearings in our meetings in my office. Let's flash back to that Kavanaugh hearing as intense as it was. It was Susan Collins who cast the deciding vote that put him on the bench. And part of the reason why was because she said he believed that this was settled law, Roe versus Wade. Is that enough for Susan Collins to cross the aisle and attempt to uh, convince her to subvert Senate norms to advance abortion rights? We shall see. It is worth noting that if you are doing your part to load up the blame train on this, that the late Harry Reid is one of the butterflies that created this hurricane. It was his nuclear option on federal judges that led to Mitch McConnell retaliating by instituting the same simple majority threshold for Supreme Court justices. That gave him more leverage to hold out on Garland and in, after the biggest upset in presidential history, two retirements and an untimely death later, we have three new justices and quite possibly a reversal on one of the most controversial decisions in court history. So what happens in the midterms? Well, the Democrats will have something to run on that is totally disconnected from Joe Biden. As we've played on this show a few times, uh, a few of the Senate ca- uh, Senate 
uh, uh, candidates like Raphael Warnock and uh, Catherine Cortez Masto and Mark Kelly in Arizona, the three most vulnerable statewide Democrats, have all run uh, uh, commercials that totally try to disconnect them from Joe Biden. Warnock, it was about insulin. For Mark Kelly, it was about him being a bipartisan astronaut. Not kidding. And for Cortez Masto, uh, she had a, a commercial just come out where she was the champion of human trafficking of, of, of not, well, not the, the champion against human trafficking for the human trafficked. This is a hot button issue that turns out Democrats and it has nothing to do that anything Biden has done. This will not only be big in statewide races like the ones I just mentioned and those for governor, but also House races and state government races. The criminalization of abortion would no longer be hypothetical. If Roe is gone, then states will decide. And if the states will decide, then liberals have a very good reason to go out and vote in November and beyond. But no matter the mood of the voters or whatever culture war issue of the day is on the table, the biggest issue that Democrats have going into these November elections is that they are, well, asleep. And they've been like that since Trump lost. Well, nothing is a bucket of ice water to wake up liberal voters like overturning Roe versus Wade. By the way, 13 states currently have so-called trigger laws on the books which would make abortion illegal in that state the second that a Supreme Court decision like this came down the pike. Those are Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. You can imagine that candidates like Beto O'Rourke will essentially rebrand his campaign in Texas to fight on this issue alone for the next seven months. Is it enough? Well, we don't know. The economy will forever be the number one issue in any race, and right now the economy is bad and possibly getting worse. Also, while abortion is a rallying cry in very liberal cities, by and large, those areas already have state laws encoding abortion rights. And then there's the demographic question. The rallying cry from many abortion activists are that men should be not make should not be making laws to control women's bodies. But the data is not so clear cut on this. In fact, in a uh, combination of studies about abortion support uh, uh, from 1972 to now, men are either on par or more supportive of a woman's right to an abortion, including in the case of rape, unmarried, mother self wants no more kids, or can't afford one. The only category where women are measurably more supportive than men is the category of for any reason. And even then, it's in the single digits. The short answer to all of this is that we don't know. But I would watch for messaging from candidates in the middle of races right now. Which brings us to this. How in the hell... Did this story leak? Well, the previous two questions dealt with the chaos for which this will cause if it is indeed the final decision. We cannot move on without addressing how insane it is that this leaked. The Supreme Court is omuerta. It is a code of silence. They are technologically regressive. Everyone who knows anything has a tremendous amount to lose. Even if you're clerking for the Supreme Court, you have immense status within the legal community. Your future includes private practice, federal judge, hell, even a spot on the Supreme Court itself. You are in an elite group that will define the rest of your life. This institution, very, 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 very rarely leaks. And even when books are written about the court and drafts of decisions are cited or quoted, they happen after the decisions are made. For an early draft of a decision yet to be officially decided to leak, this decision specifically 
is counter to the trust of that organization, which has held strong for years. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts, who incidentally fashions himself to be a court norms defender, did confirm the accuracy of the leak and began an investigation into who leaked it. So, to bring this segment to a close, let's engage in some reckless speculation. Is it a clerk? Well, that'd be a pretty high liar to climb, ladder to climb before jumping off it for media cloud or political points. It would be like working your entire life, getting to your dream job, and quitting. But maybe that's exactly it. Someone decided to be a big 1% lawyer and then decided it wasn't for them and instead wanted to get into the world of politics with a splash. Or maybe we're one degree removed and it's a significant other. Maybe a clerk brings the decision home, vents about what's happening, and the significant other decides that this information cannot be contained and leaks it to another D.C. friend who leaks it to Politico. Or then, there's this. A hack. All right, all right, all right. Get your Pepe Silvia conspiracy boards ready. The Politico scoop is credited to two reporters, Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward. Gerstein is the legal affairs reporter. You'd expect that on a story like this. But Ward is the national security reporter for Politico. So let's say somebody hacks the Supreme Court and it's circulating in hacker channels. Is the person most likely to be tipped off about it covering national security? Possibly. Who knows? I do suspect we will find something about this because Chief Justice Roberts is somebody who I believe takes stuff like this extraordinarily seriously. But it's among the biggest scoops I can remember. And now that it's confirmed as accurate, I do believe that Politico was worthwhile or in, in their rights to publish it, no matter how it got to them. Look, there's no way that I can talk about this subject without it being among the most emotional things that people like to talk about. The emotional and philosophical resonance of the abortion issue is ingrained into almost all political conversation. Should this be accurate, the next few months will be intensely chaotic. And that's it. <laughs> I can't tie a bow on it any tighter than that. Ladies and gentlemen, you can support this show in many ways, uh, uh, up to and including, you know, leaving a review. It's It's been a while since we've uh, directly asked for folks to head on out uh, to the podcast uh, uh, distributor of your choice and leave us a review. But it, it really does help. I don't think it helps with the algorithm. It does help with social proof, especially if you're referencing things that are going on, especially if you're referencing the midterms, if you're referencing that I go out and actually cover stuff. If you're referencing the kind of analysis that we are bringing you on Roe versus Wade and other stuff, that really does help. It it shows if people are looking for different perspectives that we bring a little something different. That's a totally free way that you can support the show. If you would like a paid way to support the show, then you need to head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's our Patreon for $3 a week, you get two bonus episodes each and every week. Double your PX3 enjoyment. And especially when we're on the road, like we will be in Pennsylvania, like we will be in Georgia. That means early or bonus and often both content from the front lines. Again, that is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Thank you guys so much for your support. Uh, actually have a weekend off coming up here, Pennsylvania after that, and then I believe another week, and then the final week of May, I am out in Georgia, where, by the way, George W. Bush 
gathering around the man who defied Trump and at this point looks as if he is going to beat Purdue without the aid of a runoff. Ooh. Hear about that? TakePoliticsSeriously.com. For whatever reason, you guys, the listeners of this show, cannot get enough of our conversations about political comedy. Where it came from, what makes it funny, the lines between liberal political comedy and conservative political comedy. Hell, the lines between liberal political comedy and comedy. But there is a new book out that you guys are very much going to enjoy. The tome is called That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. It is authored by a man named Nick Marks and our guest today, Matt Sinkowitz. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Justin. So what would you say right off the top is the the fundamental difference between the conservative and liberal media complexes? Yeah. So, um, you know, on the one hand, we we live in a world now where media, you know, functions on on a set of logics that that basically go across the board. Um, you've got uh, you know an increasingly uh, more targeted media, no matter where you are uh, across the spectrum. Uh, you've got the role that algorithms are playing and, you know, people, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, you tend to only see stuff that comes from your general part of that spectrum. So mm-hmm. that is that is true. Uh, but particularly on, on the stuff that that uh, that I'm interested in that we talk about in our book, uh, one of the major differences is just the, the history of particularly political comedy and how it sort of impacts what we see today. So if we're talking about the the left side of the political spectrum, that's traditionally been where. Uh, there's been a a sort of a dominant force in sort of center left liberal comedy. This is where I'd put SNL. This is where I'd put uh, the daily show, these sort of big legacy institutions that, uh, you know, traditionally have had the biggest audiences. And there was a time when that was the only way to do media, right. was to have a a relatively big show, invest a bunch of money, try to get a big audience. The difference now, of course, is that uh, as you know, as podcasters Mm -hmm. know, as anybody who works uh, in modern media knows, you don't need a big audience to justify a production. You need a good audience. You need a stable audience. You need an audience that's invested, even if it's not huge, if it is uh, dedicated to you and it's got good uh, sort of uh, kind of holds together for, for an advertiser, it can work. And so that brings me to, to answer your question. On the right, particularly as it relates to comedy, uh, you know, the, the important players are largely relatively small uh, podcasts, relatively small YouTube channels. There is the example of Greg Gutfeld, which we can get into is a little bit bigger, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but these sort of smaller, smaller pieces uh, that wouldn't have existed in the past before the sort of revolutions in new media, which made it so there, there wasn't really representation of that part of, of the political spectrum in comedy. And now there is. So the right wing comedy complex, uh, as we put it, is mostly made up of relatively small players who have really intense audience audience devotion and really tight demographics, very male, skew pretty young, uh, and that they link up together, even if they're kind of from different parts of the right. Whereas on the left, we still have a a more or less the domination, at least in terms of the way we think about it, in terms of those big institutions like SNL, Daily Show, that kind of thing. Who would you put in in that silo on, on the right, just so people can have an example of who you're talking about? Yeah. So, you know, we, we uh, acknowledge that, uh, you know, when, when I talk about the, the American right, that can include a wide range of ideologies. And it can, mm-hmm. it can include ideologies that mostly don't, don't get together on most things. And one of the arguments that we want to make is that they do get together in the world of comedy. So uh, there's a, a bunch of names. I'll throw them at you. We can, we can dive into yep, specifics yep. on anyone you want. So, you know, first and foremost, I'd say Greg Gutfeld's the first person you have to talk about these days. Uh, he's got he's got his nightly uh, late night show on Fox News, which is uh, in terms of ratings, uh, really powerful, uh, competes with Colbert, beats Kimmel, beats The Daily Show uh, in that time slot, at least in yeah. terms of uh, airing, you know, Internet viewing and all that's a little complicated. So that, that's sort of the, the closest thing you'll have to that kind of big legacy institution. Uh, and then uh, there's different sort of parts of the right wing world where comedy is, is, is becoming more and more viable. Um, <clears throat> there is a libertarian world. 
right? So the sort of leader in this general area, even though his, his politics are very complicated, uh, is Joe Rogan, right? Yep. Rogan himself, I don't, I don't think you can call him right, left, or anything. But part of what his show does is bring in voices from sort of further out in the political spectrum with, with a lot of attention to that libertarian space. And so you'll, you'll- I would also I would also wonder there with Rogan that his podcast, while he is obviously a stand-up comedian and he often yeah. has stand-up comedians on, and that's yeah. They're they're not they're not necessarily you know uh, uh, doing comedy per se. You know, if anything, the the, 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 the the comedians are are often yeah. talking about uh, uh, things that they're wind get, up getting, getting everybody in trouble. Yeah, talking about mushrooms or vaccines or something right yeah 100 yeah, exactly. and it, it's really tough to paint a brush with rogan but a big chunk of what he does is uh bring on people like uh, the legion of skanks or michael malice or um uh, people who are dave smith these people who are in that world uh yeah. and they're they are comedians they're doing you're right they're right they're doing these sort of like hybrid things where they're talking politics they're talking uh, elk meat they're talking you know whatever whatever things you do whatever yeah the, the, the point the point is that it is a freewheeling conversation that goes 100%. in a, a million different places while obviously they are stand-up comics who are wanting to get a laugh and and they want to get a laugh even bigger than that they're trying to draw people to their comedy podcasts right yes. like the reason that they go on so even if on there you have to play around in different ways uh, i don't know if you're familiar with the legion of skanks like jay okerson louis gomez when they go on to the you know, Rogan, the point is to pull people back into yeah. their much more directly comedy branded spaces. So that's yeah. a big part of what we're talking about. Um, there's also this uh, world of right wing satire, political sort of argument comedy. So the Babylon Bee is uh, is probably the best known example of this. That is a, mm-hmm. uh, a satire. So it's basically The Onion. It was originally yeah. uh, aimed largely at uh evangelical Christian audiences sort of satirizing that the, the excesses of that world uh, now is a much more sort of broad based right wing answer to the onion uh, does less of the, the Christian stuff. Uh, Steven Crowder uh, is, is a person in that world. He's the guy who, who goes to college campuses and uh, you know, says that there are two genders change my mind and gets a yep, yep, yep. hundred million YouTube pits. You know, you might not think of him as a comedian, but that that's, that's, what's on his business card. And that's, no, that's I would, I would, I would say, I would himself. say that, that, that Crowder Crowder very much is, is somebody that uh, I would say is probably more directly in a field that I would say is right wing comedy than, yeah. than, than Rogan. You know, he does yeah, I would agree. bits, he yeah, does yeah. pranks, he does, you know, right. these, these kinds of things. Yeah. I, I, we, we, we frame Rogan more as a sort of a, a carnival barker to many places, including this world that we're describing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort of drawing people in uh, somebody. We, we also, when we write about Crowder, when we write about the Babylon B, we talk a bit about Ben Shapiro, who is not a comedian himself, but is very no. into sort of comedy as culture war, like the, the left's destroying comedy and, and trying to sort of uh, make a new funnier right wing sort of uh, political space. So we, we talk about that. And then there is also, uh, as, as, as our book goes into, uh, sort of that really dark area, right? So we talk about this notion of the right-wing comedy complex, just kind of like a mall, the way we sort of describe it, right? There's the big box store. That's, that's like the target, right? That's Greg Gutfeld and what Fox News has become. Then there's these specialty shops, right? And then we argue there, and that's the people I just described. And then we argue there is this dirty, dirty basement uh, where extremists lurk. And the last part of our book is devoted to looking at uh, truly uh, sort of far extremist uh, comedy. Uh, people put in that box would be somebody like a Nick Fuentes, mm-hmm. uh, who is a on again, off again, YouTube personality who's always getting thrown off uh, because he's, uh, you know, a sort of radically anti-immigrant and, and uh, a Holocaust denier and sort of in all these ways that he's sort of winking and he does it as comedy bits. Uh, but the, the content is is sort of, geared towards those those really ugly ideologies and then we also discuss at sort of the far far end of that uh a podcast uh, uh such as the daily showa which is like a painful thing to say aloud the day that to be clear that the the joke quote unquote here showa is the is the hebrew term for for the holocaust the daily show gotcha. instead of daily yeah show. it's pretty pretty nasty yeah. stuff um yeah. a, a web comedy called uh murdoch murdoch which is uh you, you lots of swastikas in it gotcha and you know there's a difference between that and the other stuff we're talking about. And that's why we know we're, we're talking about the whole spread here of things that are, are sort of in the right wing world, whether that's relatively moderate or, or absolutely extreme. 
So I, I would imagine, and I have not, you know, spoken to them, uh, but I would imagine that that the Babylon B would probably personally react to saying, uh, oh, "Well, why why do we have to be in this mall with a mm. Holocaust denying uh, yeah. uh, a, a podcast? Uh, why 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 are they linked?" Yeah. So, um, and this could be uncomfortable stuff. On the one hand, you have to be careful about uh, guilt by association. You have to be careful about. Uh, we're not saying that one equals the other. However, uh, they, they do, they, they go together in, in, in two ways. One, a little abstract, one very concrete. Uh, one is that, you know, we do live in a sort of binarial kind of political system uh, where we have two parties and we, we tend to cut it down the middle and look right and left. And, and so if you look right, if you look left, you'll find extremists too. Uh, and you could, you could draw connections mm-hmm. between more moderates to extremists. And, and that would be, I think, intellectually reasonable. Uh, but there is also a very specific element to it, uh, which is partly because these right-wing comedy spaces are relatively small. Uh, what they do is they link up in really unusual alliances. So uh, every one of these people, with the exception of the far, far right guys, will be on each other's shows. And that, that can make really interesting moments, right? So the Babylon Bee, which uh, still is is uh, avowedly evangelical uh, Christian in perspective, will bring on somebody like Michael Malice. Uh, Michael Malice is an anarcho-capital something. It's like sort of extreme atheist. Uh, uh, yeah, totally. Like nothing, nothing in common with the Babylon Bee whatsoever, except that they're both on that side of the, of the dividing line. Right, that they both like to make fun of the libs, and that that's sort of how the algorithm treats them. It like locks them together. Yeah. So the connection that I would make, and you can say if it's fair or not, is uh, Babylon B will ha- will be happily happy to have on a character like Michael Malice, and Michael Malice will play games uh, in this right wing troll world where you know it's always ironic, but it's deeply ironic and quote unquote ironic anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, if you read his book, he's, he's making jokes about people who are, you know, uh, uh, asking quote unquote, the Jewish question. He's interviewing Sam Hyde, who uh, is giving money to the defense fund of the, the, the editor of the daily stormer. They, they, they do connect. It doesn't mean they're equivalent, but the sort of edgy trolley comedy world, which is just in bounds connects to the, world that's sort of beyond that and, and really out of bounds. And then that connects into the other spaces. So, you know, you can get from the Babylon B uh, to the daily stormer in, in a very short number of moves that, that doesn't make it their fault, but it is still a fact. And this is a phenomenon that you don't believe exists on, on the left that you can't connect a, a SNL no, personality uh, to somebody with horrifying views. No, I, no, that's not claims. No. Yeah. I, I, okay. I well, for one, I haven't researched that. No, uh, yeah, sure. that is not a claim that I, I'm, uh, I'm neutral on that claim. Um, and I suspect that you can, um, there, the, the interconnectivity and interdependency of, of the sort of right-wing comedy world is a bit different. I would argue, uh, in that they, uh, tend to be these smaller institutions, smaller, like podcasts and things that really do intermingle and intermix in a, in a really direct way. Uh, so it's not sort of like, Oh, he just sort of uh, hung out with this guy once, but like he's on his show every few weeks or something along these lines, the, the connections are, are thicker, but no, I mean, uh, I, I think that if somebody wanted to do the work uh, and show that, uh, you know, you could connect certain liberal perspectives that seem in bounds to ones that seem out of bounds, I'd be open to it. Um, and uh, might be interested. I mean, I would want to see how thick those connections are, but you know, possible. Uh, something that I've been fascinated with with the world of political comedy is that it tends to find different physical mediums. And I don't mean that, uh, uh, you know, but I guess in, in, in the bygone era, it literally physical mediums of, of radios versus televisions or magazines versus newspapers. But but now the, the platforms that uh, uh, certain ideologies uh, uh, enjoy uh, tend to be kind of different and you have seen you know the the right very much uh uh become dominant in like message board culture which bleeds into common grounds like 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 twitter uh do you think that that partly i mean and this goes all the way back to me like if if you were to you know uh, uh to 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 lay out this this foundation when i hear liberal friends discuss like the rush limbaugh show it will be Mm. 
clips that they have seen from liberal outlets where yeah. Rush Limbaugh is saying right. the most incendiary thing that he yeah. will probably say 100%. that year. Right. When yeah. you talk to conservatives yeah. about the Rush Limbaugh show, they talk to you about parody songs that they liked yeah. because yeah. Rush Limbaugh was very much a, you know, a, a morning show host that, you know, uh, yeah. uh, trafficked in a lot of those same ideas. Uh, For sure. I, I, I wonder whether or not part of any kind of interconnectivity uh, is is just because for whatever reason, conservative comedy tends to find itself in these areas apart from the channels yeah. by which liberal comedy does. Yeah, no, I think that's 100 percent right. I think that that is what what pushes towards uh, a deeper level of connectivity. Um, the the uh, it's maybe maybe this will sort of spell kind of what, what you're getting at. So let's take a character like Gutfeld. Yeah. Um, Gutfeld does not compete with anybody else on the right side of the spectrum for late night comedy viewers. I mean, somebody might, somebody on the right might enjoy Jimmy Kimmel. It's possible, but he's not, yeah. no, nobody else is really targeting. Right. And so on, on unless, the, unless he goes head to head with South park, that would, that would, that might, that might be the only thing right, for which good, a, good, 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 could compete with a, with a gut felt viewer in my mind on cable. Right. So, but, but it's very, it's very limited. Right. Yes. So uh, for Gutfeld, the other presences on the right side of the spectrum are all allies in a way. They're all uh, people uh, to bring on to the show so that fans from that other person learn about Gutfeld or for him to visit or have people from his show visit onto the other comedy spaces on the right side. And so the, the interconnectivity is a, is a wagon circling uh, in a way and that there's not really competition at the moment that that'll change over time. Uh, but it's sort of an alliance building because it is, it is limited in, in space. And, and I think you're right, limited to uh, uh, relatively smaller uh, platforms, right? Whereas on the left, uh, and again, I mean, to call people like Colbert and, you know, Kimmel, they're not, they're, they're center left sort of characters, but they are in direct competition with each other. Uh, yeah. They they do not want to interconnect at all. I mean, they want the late night atmosphere to be kind of good and people to watch late night TV. They have a few interests that align, but mostly they want to knock each other out. And so the, the, the traditional dominance of the center left in that kind of comedy world turns it into a competitive space. Whereas the relative upstart nature on the right turns it into a space where, you know, mostly the people who are involved work together. How much do you think, you know, something that we've uh, uh, spent a lot of time talking about on, on this show when it comes to political comedy is how explicit the, the politics have kind of grown yeah. uh, specifically yeah. since, since Trump, uh, Trump, uh, you know, we had yeah. one of our, one of our, our guests is a former Jimmy Kimmel writer who uh, was, you know, he left around the time that, that Trump was coming in, but uh, he was describing when the monologue is normally getting written, at least before Trump. You would always save your best joke for laughs for last because you wanted the big funny joke to be what people think about when they're <laughs> contemplating staying through the commercials. Yep. It eventually through Trump uh, uh, changed into what what was dubbed the clapter moment yep. where you sure. made your most salient and yeah. and witty political right. point, And that would keep yeah. the audience and, and certainly. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's, uh, you know, a lot to to be said about, you know, Colbert's. The, his entire uh, career kind of on late night yeah. rescued by the fact that he became a more explicitly political show. H yeah. How much do you think has that, that, that phenomenon? Well, a, is it true in your mind? And yeah. B, uh, do you think that the reaction to that has shaped conservative comedy? Oh, 100%. I think it's a great observation. Um, the, the, look, Trump broke everything. We know that in, in, in terms of discourse, in terms of the way we talk about it, right? We could have a whole other discussion about policy and all that. But in yeah. terms of, of sort of culture, he broke, broke everything. All the rules uh, got mixed around. And, and you're pointing to exactly the, the, the right thing. I think it's fair to say that generally late night hosts have, you know, I mean, Jay Leno is a little different. I don't know where you put Johnny Carson. They've been centrist characters mostly with maybe a, a light center left orientation, but with a real, real dedication to, to going across the aisle. To, to yeah. putting together a show that can can get the big chunk, the middle of the bell curve of American politics, which is, you know, historically relatively center. Um, and as long as that was the case, there was not enough room on the right to make a, a really successful right focused comedy show. Right. As long as Jay Leno is kind of doing the whole middle or even even even, you know, you could uh, pre Trump Colbert potentially. Uh, 
they're taking up too much of the right side of the middle to leave a good chunk for Greg Gutfeld. What happened with Trump, as you're pointing to, is that they really, in the Colbert world, the Kimmel world, really picked a side, really said we're, we, we need to make clear that we are not aligned with this political movement, which we think is so terrible. And as a result, they, they, it's not so much even sliding to the left as announcing that politics in a way that's going to turn off a certain amount of viewers who consider themselves on the right. And once they did that, once Colbert was, was happy sort of announcing that, and, and a lot of this was doing pen, uh, penitence, right? Uh, it's, uh, it's Jimmy Fallon mussing Trump's hair or, or Trump posting yeah. SNL, these things that people on the, on the, in the center left part felt really awful about, right? Once they really did their work to, to say we are, we are completely distanced, right? We are not talking to people who are at all sympathetic to Trump. This opened up a lane for Gutfeld to come in and swoop up, not just sort of people who are really hard partisans, but also a certain group of people who relatively centrist, but but on the right side of things, who felt like they were being alienated by the, the mainstream guys. You know, a part of what has seemingly made Gutfeld uh, uh, a success is that he kind of eschewed a little bit more of the the off kilter comedy that he was doing on yeah. red eye red previously. Eye, yeah. uh, and, and as kind of a uh, uh, settled more into the idea of this is just another Fox yep. panel, but maybe but now jokes, they're yeah. going to make the memes inside of it. It's not even like jokes, right? It's just like, you know, now, now you can chant, let's go Brandon at the end of your point in a way that mm-hmm. you couldn't during the six o'clock hour that might get you scolded yeah, by the, uh, by the line producer in the six o'clock hour. Right. And they'll do they'll do sketches. They'll do skits. They'll they'll, you know, sort of cheaply produce late night sketches and skits. But 100 percent Fox's move has been to blur those boundaries. Right. That that has yeah. been that has been what they've been doing for years. And you're, you first thing you know, is really right. Red Eye was a very adventurous show. Yeah, uh, it did. It just it did weird stuff like really yeah. strange. Uh, I mean, it was on a 3 a.m. It had the ability to do that. Uh, so that that is true. They, they've definitely on the one end sort of tempered. Uh, um, they've, they've, they've tempered the, uh, uh, the wildness of Gottfeld. Uh, but, uh, they've also sort of included more silliness in their daily coverage. So Gottfeld is not just deployed at, at night. He's also on the five, uh, Jesse yeah. Waters, who is yeah. his sort of like, I guess the Colbert to his, uh, Stuart in, in some sense that might be sacrilege to say to a lot of people, but, uh, he's also deployed earlier in the day. Uh, they're doing bits that are they're doing bits uh, at the five o'clock hour, right? That's not like a hard news show, but it's still supposed to be a newsy show. And they're they're sort of blurring these boundaries up and down uh, across the space. Uh, Fox News, I think, is at the, the vanguard of that. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that more broadly uh, in, in cable news. Yeah, I, I, I think so much of this is sort of tied up to the personalities of uh, uh, these these channels where, where you know, I. Fox News, you know, from Roger Ailes on has been very almost old television yeah. uh, uh, steeped. And, you know, that's why the ladies wear skirts and and they have their hair done up and uh, uh, they don't want any, you know, uh, mousy looking reporters on unless they're they're from the other side and, and, yeah. and you don't care what they look like. Uh, and and that five o'clock hour when people are getting off uh, of, of of work, they want it to be jovial and they want people to be yeah. th- to like each other and 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 make a, almost like a morning show level yeah. of, of 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 frivolity in a way that MSNBC and CNN, specifically through the Trump years, you know, we're yeah. we're constantly covering the fall of of Vietnam, right? Like it was yeah. it was constantly a very dour sort of attitude. And I, I, I wonder, I mean, that to me is such a huge part of the conserv- the modern conservative culture that is very dominant in the comedy, which is we're laughing and they're crying. And isn't that funny? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I think you had two, two really key points there. Uh, one, uh, yeah, it, it does have it, it, it. You know, it has an old TV. It almost has an old sort of studio system feel to it. They, they develop a stable of stars. At Fox yes. News, they are able to create and promote their own people. You know, one people, you know, if you ask what's the difference between Gutfeld and, and uh, Colbert, there there are some and you point to some. But the biggest one is that, you know, you don't have Jennifer Lawrence coming on to, to promote a, a, a movie. Right. You don't you don't yeah. have the sort of celebrity culture, but they have created their own celebrity culture. Right. It's smaller, yeah. but but really intense that the Fox News personalities are wildly popular amongst 
Fox Gigantic. News people. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 my co-author and I, Nick, uh, we went to CPAC, uh, the one right before, right as COVID was coming in 2020, uh, just to, to sort of, you know, uh, see the see the scene. And it might as well be Jennifer Lawrence when when, uh, uh, you know, Diamond and Silk or whoever uh, yep. character kind of comes in only in that room. But it's not a small room. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a it's a substantial space. So 100 percent they are they are creating stars. Uh, and they're creating personalities. And of course, some of that's going to have to do with, with sense of humor uh, and, and comedy. I actually forgot the second thing that I was, <laughs> was going to say there. Uh, what else did you uh, uh, we, we, we were yeah, talking, talking about the fact that uh, uh, the the ethos specifically between right versus left that boils into comedy is that, uh, oh, yeah. my God, uh, it's it's fun to be us because it sucks yeah. to be them and they're never happy. Which is a huge part of uh, a huge part of the Gottfeld thing, right? Is is uh, uh, pointing to ways in which the uh, the the left is supposedly over serious and dour and censorious. Uh, that that is, if there's anything that connects this whole complex that we describe, it is that uh, it is that the left. Uh, this is a right wing view of the left. So I'm not saying it's it's accurate. Yeah. But the way that they're 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 successfully able to sell to the Fox News audience and whoever else. The idea that the left is constantly going to tell you, oh, you can't joke about that. Oh, you can't. Uh, you have to take that seriously. We can't be silly at this moment. Uh, and uh, Trump's, of course, the greatest thing, uh, the greatest example of that. So so 100 percent, the uh, portrayal of on the right of the right as being able to laugh and the left is not uh, is uh, a main part of, of sort of the right wing view of things. And exactly the opposite of this traditional idea that, that's developed on the left, that only the left can be funny. Exactly. And that that's what's fascinating to me is that it's almost a one for one uh, a flip of of what the like classic the, the Stewart era daily show yep. was about. It was it was the conservatives that could not take a joke and they fun. were the one doing the war on Christmas and George Will was their mascot. And, you yep. know, among among the least funny, the least laughable uh, group yeah. of people are these fuddy duddy stick in the muds. And, and now the anarchists seem to be on. The, the right, uh, uh, even if it if it dabbles into uh, uh, places that are uh, obviously offensive and horrifying yeah. to many. No, I mean, that's completely, completely the case. And of course, the reality is that both of these these perspectives, the, the one on the left that says the right can't joke and they're always just uh, ragers and the right that the left is can't joke. They're, they're just a bunch of uh, hall monitors. Right. Those are yeah. caricatures that have never been true. And something that we're doing in the book is, you know, it might sound like we're just sort of like pointing to bad stuff on the right. And, the, you know, we're also putting the stuff on the right that we, we could talk about some of the things we do like uh, that we, we see in the book. Uh, but we're also talking about the, the left's uh, sort of holding on to this idea from the John Stewart era. Yeah. That the only people who really can use comedy to, to do something politically is, is, is on the left. Uh, you know, there is this other kind of complex we describe. It's sort of a psychological complex, whereas people on the left simply do not accept that the right is, is laughing, that the right is creating comedy that that's really yeah. powerful politically. Um, and I think John Stewart's the exact right thing to, to talk about there. Um, you know, uh, early two thousands, he's Stewart is the leader of the democratic party. Right. Who's going to who's going to draw more people at a rally, John Kerry or John Stewart? Right. It's not close. Right. Stewart is, yeah. the, is the is the flag bearer. Uh, and at that moment, a lot of people I mean, my age, right, people in late 30s, early 40s, right, really come of political age in the early 2000s. There's a comedian who really represents a, a liberal point of view. And it really gets baked in the idea that the left is funny and then the right is this, uh, I guess you say, George Will over serious can't take a joke thing. And now, uh, you know, both, you know, if you, if you, people who are not really breaking out of their sort of social media bubbles will think that the other side won't tell a joke, can't tell a joke. It's really yeah. a fascinating situation. All right. A uh, 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 final question here, and it's a big one. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the most accurate political utility of comedy? Yeah. Like what, what, yeah. what, how, how, how effective is it? To, yeah. to beyond just making a joke to people yeah. that that, Good you question. know, are going to enjoy it. Like, what is the political utility of it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think um, and, and my thinking on this has changed in, in looking closely at right wing right wing comedy. And the answer I'd give you now is that uh, it is to smooth over differences. Uh, we have a we have a two party system. Right. We have a binary political culture, which means that that everybody who votes, at least, is going to going to be in one of two giant continuums giant it's going to be full of contradictions 
right? So on, on the right in particular, you're going to have libertarians who are all about, uh, you know, uh, uh, free speech and free markets, and you're going to have social conservatives who are all about uh, uh, Christian values or something, right? Uh, this space that has a tremendous amount of diversity that could spend all of its time fighting against itself. Instead, one thing that it can do is make jokes about the other guy. That yeah. You can use comedy to, to glue together a coalition that doesn't totally make ideological sense, yeah. but has this outside space, uh, can create an identity through comedy and kind of glue together uh, sometimes pieces that don't fit without the glue. And so I'd call it coalition building in a way, but it's more like just that first step of coalition building. All right, what is it that we can all do in this right-wing coalition, even though we disagree on a lot of stuff? Well, one thing we can do is laugh in this one direction together. And then, you know, then it becomes that much easier to put together the, the policy stuff or the, the whatever else is going to be part of building that coalition. Yeah. You know, it, it's a very interesting point you make because, uh, you know, as somebody who is peripherally involved in, in, in the world of comedy, boy, is it hard to make a joke that people find funny. And, and if you yeah. can do that and also uh, uh, create a, a, a credible political coalition while you're, while you're doing it, then that is, that is certainly a, a, a talent. Uh, well, uh, uh, Matt, thank you so much. Your brand new book, uh, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work, is available now. Uh, you and your co-author, Nick Marks, and folks can get that at uh, Amazon.com. Or if you hate uh, uh, Amazon.com, go to UC Press. But if you if you enjoyed this interview and want more of it, then go to Amazon and leave a review because it helps. And we always want to support authors who come on this show. Uh, uh, Matt. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Justin. It was a lot of fun. And that's going to wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to thank our guest, Matt Sinkowitz, you can do so by heading on over to px3guest.com. You want to send me an email to the show. I suspect we might get a few considering we are talking about abortion, then you can do so. The young American at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at PX three tweets. Our Twitch is PX three live where I am live Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And then of course you can share this podcast with your friends, family and clergy PX three podcast.com. Find our merch at politicsmerch.com. If you'd like to support us with a one-time donation, you can do so. PayPal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20 and our cash app is px3cash. Send me anything you'd like physical in the mail. Just go ahead and make it out to Justin Young. P.O. Box 15-31-84, Austin, Texas 78715. Of course, you can get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we missed during our free podcast schedule and our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier. Vigard, Alexis, Neil of Neils, MC Dradio, Unsafe, DB Level, Katie, Double K Ranch, Amanda, Yield, Pinball Shop, John, DP4, Bongo, Neemeister, Nick's Horseless Diner, No Horses Ever, Catherine, Persons Familiar with the Matter, and Vote for Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, 100 Mile Runner, Edison, Up, Down, Up, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Start, Dr. G, Headphones, Neil, Charles, Darren, Alex, owner of the Stronger Now Gym in Atlanta, Idris Arslandian, Blue Front, and the Lenina DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana's Shrill Shrieks, Miranda Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Redneck Tech is awesome. David, Brad, Richard, D Laser, just another pilot, middle aged Mike who loves Frank got abducted, Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Jen, Adam L, D Really, Chopper, J Pink, Andrew, and Josh. If you'd like your name read in that slot, only one place to go, take politics seriously.com essay episode coming up on Friday. We are going to take a look at the permanent Democratic majority. Remember that? Permanent Democratic majority. It was very much a believable thing back in the late aughts, early tens. Why it was thought to be possible when it began to fall apart 
why it is totally destroyed now, and if it is about ready to rebound. All discussed on our essay episode about the topic, the permanent Democratic majority, this Friday. Till then, your old pal Justin Robert Young is telling you some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh! Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.